Well, if you um, have been with us this summer, you know that we're in a series in the parables, the parables of Jesus. Okay, we've gone a few weeks into that, and today we're going to be looking at a parable kind of nestled into a broader narrative, and it's the parable of the moneylender. And so if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, and uh, I've asked Linda here to come and read the text for us this morning. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, to whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. Let's, let's pray together. Father, I pray you would open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. May we view you and your word rightly this morning. Lord, may we find a humble posture underneath it so that um, the light of your word can shine into our lives, um, making things exposed that need to be exposed, um, celebrating what needs to be celebrated, um, enlivening what needs to be made alive. Lord, would you just help us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look at verse 41, you'll see that this parable that Jesus tells is about money. It's about debt, right? Now, maybe not the kind of money that we're thinking of, or more specifically, the kind of debt that we're thinking of, but he, he illustrates his point with the language of debt, right? 
I think I was, lo- I was thinking back this week. I think about um, year three of our marriage, I think, is when we w- had accrued about $50,000 in debt, okay? We had uh, grad school debt, and we had a car loan, and we were not um, super perturbed about this. It was kind of normative for couples our stage to have a lot of debt. My sister, though, um, she had six-figure debt. And she had recently had been turned on to this guy named Dave Ramsey. I don't know if you've heard of him. And uh, this isn't an endorsement or anything, whatever. Um, but she's like, you got to get down with some of this Dave Ramsey stuff because it's changing our lives. We're working this plan. Our debt is going away. It's amazing. So I, I dialed into what Dave had to say about debt and debt reduction. And, hey, it, was, it, was, uh, it worked. Okay? Simple, simple stuff. Um, and we chipped away 50000 over the course of four years. And I remember clearly we were living in Nashville at the time and we wrote that last check or made that last payment and the emotions that were connected to having that $50,000 debt just be erased, be done, those emotions were strong. Like that sense of relief. The, the financial monkey is off our back. Like this huge elephant in the room, financially speaking. We, we'd eaten the elephant one bite at a time, you know what I'm saying? And it was, the elephant was gone. And man, what a sense of relief. No more just nagging financial obligation hanging around our neck. Glorious day, all done. There were strong emotions of joy that we felt on that day. And today's parable deals with emotions that surround Two different people in two different kinds of debt, or they think they're in different kinds of debt. And there's strong emotions tied up with that debt, especially when that debt gets paid. So here's the main point for this morning, all right? You just jot this down, make a mental note. All right, this is what we're going to walk out of here with today, okay? It's this. Jesus is going to show us today how forgiveness from God relates to love for God. Okay, let me say that again. Jesus is going to show us today, he's going to show Simon and this woman and us who get to listen in, the relationship between forgiveness from God and love for God. So let's take a look. Now, the scripture that Linda read for us, it it breaks down very simply into four easy sections. Number one, we've got the setting. And number two, we've got the Pharisee's response. Number three, we've got Jesus' parable in light of Simon's response. And then we got Jesus' response, all right? Setting, Pharisee's response, Jesus' parable, and then Jesus' response, all right? So let's start with the setting. So we see here in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house. So he's willing to come to the house of a Pharisee, but while he's there... Something very dramatic happens. A scene with pregnant with tension, right? Now it's often, let me just give you a Bible reading tip. When you're reading the Bible, it's often very helpful to try to slow down, okay? Slow down and think about what is happening here. And if I were to imagine myself in this scene, what would it look like? What would it feel like? What would it smell like? 
what would be the sensations around me if I'm in this scene right here? But you'll never do that unless you slow down. So we got to slow down. What, what does it sound like in this room? All right, so let's practice this with this text. Verse 36, let's look at it. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now there's a lot of tension in this scene. You feel it? We gotta slow down to catch it. All right, so first of all, we have a woman, okay? Not a big deal at first glance, but in ancient Middle Eastern culture, there's a lot of rules regulating men and women and how they relate to each other, especially in public. Okay? So we've got that right off the bat. Secondly, we learn that it's a woman with some sketchy character. Right? What does it say? Who was a sinner. Okay? Verse 37, see that there? And now, when talking about women who are sinners, oftentimes the Bible means um, it could be a woman that is maybe somewhat promiscuous, maybe a prostitute, okay? We don't really know, but that was somewhat typical in this time period when authors are writing about certain things. So we've got a woman, uh, secondly, of sketchy character, and she breaks into the room where Jesus is the guest of honor. And so you can imagine all eyes on her. You can imagine the whispers of the party goers. The whispers among others in the house, assuming there were others. And, and what happens? She starts to make a scene. All eyes on Jesus, but here she comes, and, and she draws attention to herself as she relates to Jesus. So what is she doing? Well, thirdly, she starts weeping. So public weeping, that's not just like crying, that's not just sniffling, that's weeping, like heaving. If someone does that in public, it's going to draw attention, right? And, and also she's kissing. She's kissing Jesus' feet. And not only that, weeping, kissing, she's touching Jesus' feet with her hands and wiping them with ointment. And so weeping, kissing, touching, and, and also her hair is let down because we learn that she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, in this ancient culture, if a woman has her hair down, that's a scandalous thing. Uh, again, oftentimes, uh, and this is still true today, we learn this when we go to North Africa on some of our trips, a woman in public with her hair down can sometimes have the connotation of promiscuity. And that's the same true in this scene, in this day and age. And so... You've got this scene with a woman of sketchy character with her hair down, breaks into the party, weeping and kissing Jesus' feet and rubbing them with ointment and using her hair as a towel. How do you think you would have reacted had you been there? It's an intense scene, right? Can you imagine that in your, in your, in your mind? Well, 
Simon's reaction is clear. You might not know how you would have reacted, but we have documentation here of how Simon reacted, the master of the house. Let's look at his reaction. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So Simon here, he's making some assumptions about Jesus, is he not? You see that in the text? What's he assuming? Well, first of all, he's assuming that Jesus is not in any way supernatural at all. Why? Because if he was, he wouldn't let this woman, or he would know about this woman and that she's sketchy. And secondly, he's assuming that Jesus is in no way holy. Because why? Because if he were really a holy man of God, he wouldn't let this sinner touch him. So Simon is assuming right off the bat, superficial assumption about Jesus, he's not supernatural in any way, and he's not holy. And Jesus is going to show him at the end of our scene that he is supernatural, but in a very different way than this Pharisee does not expect. But before we jump to that, let's, let's pause here. I want us to reflect just for a second about the Pharisee and his heart. Let's reflect on the Pharisee heart, the Pharisaical heart. And I think if we're honest, there's going to be room here for us for some repentance. Now look at verse 39. Look at it again. What does it say? It says that Simon's ob big objection here is that this woman was a sinner. He's offended by Jesus allowing this sinner to touch him. You see that in the text? See it? This sinful woman is not just in proximity to Jesus, like, in, like breathing the same air. No, no. She's touching Jesus, right? That was his main problem. Before we jump to Simon, let's, let's pause on Jesus for a second. What does that say about Jesus? What does that say about Jesus? He's willing to have proximity, and not just proximity, he's willing to be in close proximity such that you can touch him. Sinners are welcome to do that with Jesus. He doesn't recoil in disgust like Simon did. He welcomes them in to be near him, to touch him, to worship him, to be forgiven by him. So Simon considered her a dirty sinner, right? And in contrast, he considered himself clean, right? She's, she's foul. She's disgusting. Jesus, no, don't go near it. So let me ask us this today. As we think about the pharisaical heart, who do you consider to be a dirty sinner? Like, if you had a party and Jesus was there, if he was hanging out with certain types of people, would that annoy you a little bit? If Jesus hangs out with a certain kind of person, does that raise your eyebrows a bit? Are we tempted to be offended by who Jesus hangs out with? 
what if Jesus spends time at the party with the transgendered person? What if Jesus at the party spends time with the militant Trump supporter? What if Jesus spends time at the party with the militant non-Trump supporter? What if Jesus at the party spends time with the single mom who just can't get her bills paid? What if Jesus hangs out at the party with the guy in the suit who has a very successful business because he knows all of the tax loopholes? The one percenter. Like, who are the people in our lives that we view as dirty sinners? It's good for us to reflect on that. See, I think if we're honest, if we're really honest, we all have that category in our mind. In some shape or form. We might be Christian nice and not let anybody see it, right? We know how to clean ourselves up pretty good, but if we're just real honest in our own head, where is that place? Where is that pharisaical heart? Where is that room for repentance? Like, are we offended by who Jesus hangs out with? See, I think we should be humbled. See, I, I think if we're honest, we're not that different from the Pharisees. And all, almost all of us can have quickly have a pharisaical heart when it comes to questioning the fact that Jesus will receive anyone who is willing to humbly come. Like, so then the question becomes, are we willing to receive anyone who will humbly come? That's a hard, that's a hard one, Right? Or would we prefer that Jesus not hang out with certain types of people because we know what that might imply? You know what that implies? It implies that if he hangs out with certain people, he's probably going to call me to hang out with them too. And that might make me uncomfortable. Right? But here's, if you're feeling a weight of conviction this morning, take, take heart. There's yet hope. What's the hope? Jesus is here hanging out with a Pharisee, Right? He got an invitation from a Pharisee, and he didn't say, no, I, you're, you're, you're gross and disgusting because you have a Pharisaical heart. I'm not going to hang out with you either. No, he's hanging out at, at the Pharisee's house. So if you have a Pharisaical heart th this morning, take heart. There's yet hope. Jesus hangs out with Pharisees too. You with me? See, if Jesus is willing to come to this Pharisee's house, there's yet hope for this Pharisee. See, what Simon is quickly going to see, and we should quickly join him, is that the issue is not if you are a sinner, but what is your view of your sin, and what is your response to it? So Jesus, understanding, again, showing that he is supernatural, he understands Simon's heart, he can read into Simon's heart. Now, we look at Jesus' response. To Simon's response, all right? And in typical Jesus fashion, he tells him a story, all right? Look at verse 41. Now, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, a denarii was one day's wages. So imagine how much money you make in, what does it say, 500 days? And then imagine how much money you make in 50 days. So roughly, roughly speaking, uh, how much money do you make in a year and a half? How much do you make in a month and a half? A lot, pretty significant difference in, in money, right? So one owed him a year and a half's 
uh, wages, and the other owed him a month and a half year's wages. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Question, now which of them, Simon, will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus, he said to him, you have judged rightly. So, so we ask Simon a poignant question, right? And we get to listen in. We get to place ourselves in, in Simon's shoes. Here's the question. Now, which one of them will love him more? What do you think? What would you say had you been there? Look at verse 42 again. The issue here, here is, what's the word? Love. The issue is love, right? Which one is going to respond with love more? Which one's going to react with love more? Which one's going to demonstrate in tangible ways with how they carry themselves love more? See, the parable is very, very clear. This is not hard to figure out. What is he saying? He's saying little debt forgiven equals little love shown. Huge debt forgiven equals huge love shown, right? Now let me paint a different scenario for us to just kind of continue to climb deeper into what Jesus is getting at here. Imagine a different scenario. Imagine you're eating dinner with a friend at a restaurant, and you're sitting at a wooden table, and your friend notices that the table might have been, not have, the table might not have been sanded very well, and there's some potential splinters right at where you have your hand placed, and your friend says to you, oh, don't put your hand there, because you might get a splinter. How would you respond? Well, you'd be thankful. You'd be, oh, cool, thanks. I'm going to avoid that spot. I don't want to get a splinter. But it's not like you'd be doing cartwheels of joy, right? You'd just be thankful, right? Okay, thanks, and on with the conversation, right? Splinter, uh, splinter scenario. Now, check out a different scenario. Imagine you're in a horrible car accident and you're pinned in your car. And you have broken bones and you're in shock. And your door won't open because of the wreckage. And you can't move or undo your seatbelts because you're pinned. And the gas tanks have ruptured. And the flames are starting to, to encroach on you from every, every angle. And your mind is racing with adrenaline, but there's nothing you can do. You're facing immediate death. And just at that moment, you hear yelling and footsteps, and, and your door is ripped off its hinges, and your seatbelt is cut, and you're dragged to safety by a daring fireman just as the car explodes into flames. Now, which scenario is going to instill in your heart a greater sense of appreciation, thankfulness, love, gratitude for the person who prevented your harm? not hard, is it? It's the car crash, right? It's not a challenging response. It's the car crash. See, a deficient love for Jesus is usually tied to a deficient view of the scenario you're in. Are you in a splinter scenario or a car crash scenario? See, when it comes to love for the one who forgives, the Pharisee mistakenly believes he's in a, spl a splinter scenario, right? 
But the woman, when it comes to love for the one who forgives, she knows. There's no question, there's no doubt, there's no uncertainty. She knows she's in the car accident scenario. She's felt the heat of the flames. She's felt the crunch of the wreckage. She's felt the iron grip of her seatbelt. She's felt the broken bones and the utter powerlessness. And as a result, understanding the, the, the rescue that she has experienced, what does she do? She responds rightly. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Simon, she has responded rightly. See, it, it turns out, and, he, and Jesus is going to show us in a second, that the party goers and Simon and maybe us too as we listen in, we see with wrong vision. We see with faulty eyes. And Jesus has to give us an eyeball transplant. Are you open to that? To see with new eyes? Okay? And look at, look at what he says. Look at what he says to Simon, verse 44. This is Jesus' explanation now. Then turning toward the woman, so it turns toward the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. He said to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? And I don't think he meant, do you have the physical capacity to look upon her? I think what he means is kind of like, like, Simon, do you see, but do you really see? Like, do you see what she's doing here? Simon, do you see what's going on here? Simon, do you know the implications of, of, of why she's doing what she's doing, where she's coming from, and why this is all going down right now in your living room. Simon, do you see, can you see this clearly, Simon? And then he just very honestly and clearly breaks down the contrast in terms of response. There's a Simon response, and there's a woman's response. Look at what he says. Verse 44, second half of it. He says, Simon, I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Contrast number one. Contrast number two. Simon, you gave me no kiss, which would have been customary in that day. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. Third contrast. Simon, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But here's the punchline. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So you see what Jesus is doing here? Can you feel it? Can you place yourself in that scene? He's showing Simon, in vivid categories, the relationship between forgiveness from God and love for God. How do they relate? See, if you owe someone five bucks and I come and reach in my wallet and give you five bucks to repay that debt, again, you're not going to be doing cartwheels of joy, right? You'll be thankful. It's just five bucks, right? But if you owe five million dollars to someone and they have the power to throw you in prison for life if you don't pay that debt, and then a benevolent person comes who's very wealthy and they see your situation and they scratch you a check for five million and just simply give it to you by grace alone, how would you respond? You would be ecstatic, right? That's a time when we do cartwheels of joy, right? Even if you're not able to do a cartwheel, you just do it anyway and look like a fool, right? Just go for it. You have to respond in some way, or you're probably the most entitled person of all time, right? 
you will respond in that kind of a scenario with some reaction that, that's probably going to look like ecstatic, blown away. You might have a response that's going to turn some heads where religious people that don't understand Jesus look at you like, dude, can you just calm down? Right? It's not a hard concept for us to grasp. It's good for us to reflect on it. A deficient love for Jesus is usually tied to a deficient view of the debt you are in. A massive love for Jesus usually is connected to a right understanding of how he's paid your debt. A deficient love for Jesus is usually tied to a deficient view of our own sin. A massive love for Jesus is usually tied to understanding the weight of my sin and how that's been dealt with. So we've seen ourselves, I think, in the Pharisee. If we're honest, we can see ourselves in the Pharisee. But now let's see ourselves in the woman. Let's see ourselves in the woman. What does Jesus say about her? Look at verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Her sins are many. So he's, he's not sweeping her sin under the rug. He's not redefining sin and saying, well, we're, we're in a different time and age now, and we understand things differently, so sin means something different now. He doesn't say that. He's honest about her sin, okay? He doesn't sweep it under the rug and say it's no big deal, but her sins that are a big deal do not define her. See that? What is she defined by now? What does it say? What's her identity now? She's not a sinner. It's not, quote, sinner. It's not prostitute. It's not dirty sinner. What is it? Forgiven. Her sins, which are many, are, that's an identity statement, are forgiven. Her fundamental identity is not her dirty sin. It's the fact that Jesus has defined her as one who has been forgiven. She's a lover of Jesus because she's been forgiven by Jesus of her massive debt. And this love for God, when you really get it, might, act, uh, might cause you to act in a certain way that party goers are going to turn their head. And we don't get the impression, do we, that she cares. She's not a, she doesn't fear people. Right? She knows what she's getting into when she, when she jumps into Simon's living room. She doesn't care. She doesn't care about the whispers and the gossip of other people. She doesn't care. She doesn't hold back one bit, does she? Why? Because her vision of her sin debt being canceled has exploded her heart such that Jesus looms a million times larger than the opinions of people who don't know him like she does. You hear that? So again, let, let's, let's, let's try to place ourselves in the world of this story. And let's ask ourselves, as we do, about our hearts right now. Are we tempted to be apathetic towards God right now, maybe? Are we feeling a lack of love towards God? Are we tempted to maybe look at the cross and yawn? 
does the response that the woman gives, if you really place yourself in this text, does it make you kind of nervous? Right? Like, can't you just calm down a little bit? Like, get yourself together. Get off the floor. My goodness, here's a box of Kleenex. You know what I mean? Like, do you really need to carry on like this? Maybe we're tempted to feel this way because, personally, we don't see our sin rightly. Maybe it's because we don't understand how God's wrath is in violent opposition to our sin. Maybe it's because we don't understand how our sin is not just a few petty things here and there, but a disease that reaches down to the level of our innermost thoughts and motives. Maybe it's because we don't understand that God's standard is not our subjective, personal, defined by ourselves standard that just so happens that we reach every time, but rather God's standard is his own perfect holiness, his anywhere, all the time, every time holiness. If you're feeling apathetic towards God right now, maybe it's because of these things. You're not thinking rightly about the situation you're in. But if you know these things are true, and you know that that God is the cosmic judge, and we are in his courtroom, if you know that he's the cosmic banker, and we're in debt up to our eyeballs, if you know that God's standard is not my subjective standard that I happen to reach every time, but it's his perfect standard that I'm incapable of reaching any time on my own, if I know that I'm in a violent car crash of sin, and I really think rightly about my scenario, And if God breaks into that scenario and he says to you through the cross and the empty tomb, come here, come near, I love you, I know everything about you, I love you. Your sin is great, my mercy is greater. In light of your repentance, you're you're free to go. You don't sit in a courtroom anymore. Your guilt no longer defines you. You're free to go, but you're also free to come near. Because your repentance, you're no longer defined by your sin. You're defined by who I say you are. And who do I say you are? Forgiven, loved, received, known, cherished so what does that statement do to your heart if you really know the kind of situation that you're in if you truly understand your sinful condition see what was what was simon's problem he didn't understand this woman's reaction why did he not understand it because he didn't know the depth of his own sin he was thinking splinters instead of car crash But see, those who know their sin and don't stay there and morbidly fixate on it, but then move towards Jesus and his forgiveness, those folks can't restrain themselves from loving him. Jesus pointed out to Simon that he loved little because he knew his sin little. The woman loved much, and and her life obviously looked like it in Simon's living room. This woman loved much because she knew her sin much, and then she knew the forgiveness of Jesus much. The objection, though, might come. Why all this talk of sin? 
right? Maybe you've been hanging out in churches that you just feel like they just talk about sin too much. Maybe that's how you were raised, or sometimes that's the, the, the bad rap that Christianity can get in, in the culture or through media. And maybe it's true in some sense, right? And maybe some churches do talk about sin too much. But let me just say this. I mean, why can't we just be positive and encouraging and safe for the whole family all the time, right? Listen to what John Stott says. It's not we who exaggerate when we stress the seriousness of sin, but our critics who underestimate it. God said of the false prophets in Old Testament days, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Superficial remedies are always due to a faulty diagnosis. Those who prescribe them have fallen victim to the deceiving spirit of modernity, which denies the gravity of sin. They make a true diagnosis of our condition, however grave as it is, could, oh, I'm sorry, to make a true diagnosis of our condition, however grave as it is, could never be unhealthy, provided that we go on immediately to the remedy. So the law that condemns us is nevertheless God's good gift because why? Because it sends us to Christ to be justified. And the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of guilt, but only in order that it might more effectively bear witness to Christ as the Savior from guilt. There is no joy Compar comparable to the joy of the forgiven. Let me say that again. There's no joy comparable to the joy of the forgiven. Let's see how this narrative ends. Verse 48. And he said to her, so he just got done talking to Simon, now he turns to her. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. He already said it to Simon once. He says it again. Simon, her sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? We even forgive sins. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Remember how we started the scene? Simon's doubting that Jesus is the real deal. He's doubting that he's a prophet. But Jesus takes him one step further. You see this? He doesn't just claim to be a prophet. He claims to be God. Because they're asking themselves at the table, and they're asking the right question. It's a good question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, you got a right to say to this woman, her sins are forgiven? How do you do that? Well, he can't do that unless he's God. And here's the good news for all of us this morning. There is a God, his name is Jesus, and he's willing to forgive sins. And they're looking at him going, do you have authority to do this? Yes, Jesus says, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So if the guy who has all authority in heaven on earth looks you in the eye and says, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, right? There's no more room for wallowing in condemnation because he has all authority. 
And he says, your sins are forgiven. There's no room for second guessing and doubting. Oh, my sins are really forgiven. No, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth looks at you through the cross and the empty tomb. And if you're willing to come, he says, your sins are forgiven. It's over. It's done. It's at the bottom of the sea, never to be dragged up again. It's over. Nothing more for you to do. It's done. Your identity now has shifted, right? You're no longer defined by what happened back then. You're defined by today and by faith. If you come to Jesus in repentance and trust that his cross and his empty tomb is applied to you when you come to him and you trust him and you say, this backpack of sin I'm wearing, too heavy, I can't do it anymore. Jesus, are you willing to carry it? And you hand it to him. He says, yes, I'm willing to carry it and I can carry it. I'm the only one who has the authority to do that. My cross and my empty tomb are the means by which that happens. If you hand that to him, it's over. It's done. It's over. He has that authority. And handing that backpack is what the Bible calls faith. And look at what he says to this woman. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now some of you in this room maybe can do that handing over process for the first time today. Maybe you're struck by the fact that, yeah, I do define my sin based on a subjective standard that I just happen to meet every time, and I'm not seeing this rightly, and if God's holiness is the standard, his perfect everywhere, all the time holiness is the standard, then I, yeah, I, I, I'm falling short. And maybe you see that today for the first time, and you hear there's good news that Jesus says, it's okay. I'm here. I can carry that for you if you're willing to hand it over. Maybe for the first time, you can do that. And then see your heart explode in love for God. Because forgiveness from God always equates to love for God. Maybe you can do that for the first time. Or maybe that can happen again for the millionth time for you in your life today. As you're reminded of what it means to be defined as a forgiven one. Right? That you're reminded that your identity is not one of condemnation anymore. Your identity is one of security as a son or daughter of the great king of the universe who joyfully welcomes you in without reservation to be with him forever. And that should explode your heart with joy, with extravagant woman-like in Simon's living room type emotion. How could it not, right? There's no joy like the joy of the Let's pray. Father, would you help us apply what we have seen today in your word to our hearts, and may it be um, rooted with, with, with roots that go deep into our hearts. Lord, we need your help. We believe. Help our unbelief. Um, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.